Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on The Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a challenge as Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner discovered Gretchen needed to hire a game artist for her education tech company. She went to ZipRecruiter.com, posted her job, found the right person in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, NBA 2K20 is coming out. This isn't a game. This is the place the game comes to learn. Next level graphics, gameplay, player control and customization. Bill Simmons. I'm announcing on this. Yeah, you can... You, you will be playing, and all of a sudden, I'll just pop on. NBA 2K20 continues to redefine what's possible in sports gaming, and with its immersive open-world neighborhood, 2K20 is a platform for players to come together and create what's next in culture. Play NBA 2K20 today. NBA 2K20, welcome to the next, and welcome to me, because I'll be popping on your game as you're playing. All of a sudden, you're hearing my voice and think you're hearing a podcast or something. We're also brought to you by The Hottest Take, that is our exclusive daily podcast that's going to be on Spotify starting next week, September 16th. You can uh, follow The Hottest Take on Spotify. This is an idea we've had since 2015. Chris Ryan wanted to do a game show with The Hottest Take where we had judges and uh, we talked about that. We tried to figure out different incarnations and we never kind of figured it out. And then we finally figured it out. We decided it would be fun to take the hottest takes we've ever considered, takes we don't even necessarily believe, and argue about those takes like we really did believe them. But do we actually believe them? I don't know. That's for you to decide. That's the hottest take. And a bunch of the people who have been on this podcast and on the Ringer Podcast Network in general are going to be coming on and delivering takes. Here's the, here's the little catch. It's a short podcast. It's going to be between six and nine minutes, depending on the podcast. So it's a little quickie, a little way to start your morning. All you have to do is go to Spotify and subscribe to The Hottest Take on Spotify. It's exclusively there. And there you go. All right. We are taping this part at six o'clock PT, West Coast time. We'd actually finished this podcast and we're putting it up later tonight. And then a story broke, courtesy of the New York Times and TMZ, that New England Patriots receiver Antonio Brown had been accused of sexual assault on three separate incidents by a woman named Brittany Taylor, who is somebody that was working as a trainer for him. The details are, are pretty horrible. Um, a lawyer representing Brown, Darren Heitner, released a statement saying that Mr. Brown denies each and every allegation in the lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and until we find out more about this story, which again is really horrible, um, I don't feel comfortable talking about Brown on the podcast. So so I had my buddy Jacko. He came on earlier today and we talked about the Patriots at the top as well as the Red Sox and where the Democratic Party is standing right now. And then it goes to Sean Penn after that. But until we find out more about this story with Brown, um, I'm just going to take that Patriots part out and it's going to jump right to the Red Sox. So um Let's see how the story plays out. Here is uh, my buddy Jacko, and we are going right to the baseball part. I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking how we had to talk on a podcast at some point this week. You love nothing more 
then when this Red Sox ownership, which has won me four yeah. World Series, so I'm going to tread carefully, um, A, has a scapegoat, and right. then B, does jumps on some sort of media manipulation narrative in some way. And they really right. peaked on Sunday after yet another embarrassing Yankees Red Sox series. Sunday night, the Patriots have just made one of the craziest um, Boston signings in recent memory. Most unexpected. Oh, my God. It's definitely one of those, like, even people's moms knew about what happened that don't follow <laughs> sports. And on top right. of it, the Patriots are kicking the Steelers' ass on Sunday night. So Monday, Tuesday is just all going to be Patriots locally. Nobody's going to care about anything else. Right. And at midnight, the Red Sox are like, ah, hey, uh, we fired her. We fired her GM. Uh, it's not going to be here anymore. Well, isn't there a conspiracy theory that John Henry hates the Patriots? Or has, isn't there some bad blood between like John Henry and the Globe and the Patriots? Yeah, there's always been rumors. Yeah, so the, the WDI you know, the, the, and all that thing stuff. thing that he did this to step on their banner ceremony and the Antonio Brown thing or whatever. No, that, I think it's the opposite. I think, I think they knew they were doing this anyway. Like a Friday night news dump. Oh, yeah. it's a, the all timer. This was what was the one where Nixon fired all the uh, all the, the Saturday night massacre. The Saturday yeah. massacre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the Saturday. Night, it was the Sunday night massacre. They did I it. Just, I was. I woke up and I I I had gone to bed because I'm old and I, I woke up the next day and I turned on my phone and I was looking at Twitter and it said you know part ways with Dombrowski and I was like, wow, I can't believe it because I mean, the guy won 108 games in the world series last year. And so to blame it on Dombrowski, like what did he take John Henry's checkbook? And he was like doing all these things without their knowledge. Yeah, Like he's, you know, he signed Steve Pierce to an extension and gave more money to Porcello and sale and signed price to 217 million. Like did nobody else sign off on that? That was like all on him. And to blame it, blame this year on him. I mean, they didn't bring back Kimbrel and they didn't bring back Joe Kelly, but the rest of the team was the same. Like, I, I don't understand what was his fault. I mean, he's been doing, this is like what his, you know, his, his thing is that he, his resume was that he goes out and signs guys and he burns the farm system to get guys in, but they, they won the world series last year and had the most wins in the history of your franchise. <laughs> and then they can the guy at midnight and then they don't have any kind of a press conference or anything. And they only have about 47 different, you know, executive vice presidents. And they make poor Alex Cora have a press conference where reporters question him about it. And he's like, I didn't fire anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I just found out. Sorry, guys. Uh, they, I mean, for an extremely successful ownership group that, you know, turned the franchise around, they, they do some things that make you scratch your head sometimes. Like, I just don't understand why it's his fault. And then you don't come out and explain what your rationale was behind it. So there were a lot of rumblings all year, even after they won the World Series, that it was a very weird dynamic over there. And Shaughnessy for the Globe had a piece about a month ago. He's pretty wired in with in the Red Sox side with a couple of different people. And he had some piece a month ago about basically tipping the tipping it off that right. there was a weird thing going on where he only had Tony LaRussa and this other guy as his like kind of right-hand people and didn't really interact with anyone else and was just presented himself as the aloof enigma, which you can do when you have the best season in Red Sox history. But it's harder to do when every single move you've made during an entire year of 2019 was probably the wrong move. Yeah. He did 
the pro I had friends. I was just excited to get baseball texts from anybody other than you and my buddy Hench and my dad, who were the only three people that even text me about baseball anymore. <laughs> right. But I had friends that were like, wow, that guy just won you the world series. What happened? And it really comes down to, he just spent a lot of money after they won the title, but seemed to not realize that by doing that, they're now going to have to choose between Mookie Betts and J.D. Martinez. And right. But I mean, yeah, anybody could have known that, though. I, I got to say, I didn't know that last year. Like when they gave Evaldi that huge extension, I was like, great. It's not my money. He's a World Series hero. Glad he's back. And if he blows out his arm, so be it. But I didn't realize like, hey, by doing the sale extension and by doing Evaldi, we're going to have to choose. It's going to be Sophie's choice between JD and Mookie in the next off season. I would not have well, signed off on that. that it, really that Mookie bets after the trout contract basically came out and said, or his agent did that. He, they, he wants Mike trout money. He deserves it. Yeah. But they're, they're not going to give him that. They're not going to give him Mike trout money with all the other money they have tied up. Yeah, but he deserves at least JD Martinez to opt out. What if he doesn't opt out? I mean, I made a joke on Twitter about this. You know, he's going to get a phone call. He's going to say it's Bob Holler for the Boston Globe. Oh, they're going to smear him? On him. Where they try to dig up some dirt to run him out of town, but um, <laughs> which I wouldn't put past them. <laughs> he's going to have the old Terry Francona profile treatment. Exactly. JD, it's Bob Holder from the Globe. Can you comment on your four mistresses' thoughts? <laughs> JD, I was searching through your locker yesterday. Uh, all <laughs> due respect to Bob Holler. It was just he, he wrote the he wrote the Terry Francona piece that, that had right. a lot of After sources. They ran Terry Francona out of yeah, town. It had a lot of sources. He was the guy that dragged him through the mud, right? Hey, I mean it's his job as a reporter if people are telling him stuff to write the stuff. Absolutely. It's just that Absolutely. everybody had a clear agenda with what they were telling him. And you know, I I just think he did a really bad job this year and it was obviously not happy behind the scenes to begin with. But you talk about the sale extension, which Hench and I went nuts when that happened because we were like, that guy just basically couldn't get through the last two postseasons. Why can we can we see right. another year first? Like uh yeah. is it okay if we can make sure he can pitch six, seven straight months? Could that, the guy could, loved his could, players, you know. He wanted to be loyal to guys that won the most games in Red Sox history, and is like, you know, paying you back for past service. Well, the other, you know, the Kimbrel thing I supported because that guy was a roller coaster ride, and I did believe right. in the whole bullpen by committee thing. You but don't it, need a closer, right? Yeah, it also didn't work, and you know, as the season went along, and as that became one of the Achilles heels of the team, along with the atrocious starting pitching, um, they just kind of didn't do anything. And the big move was Kashner. You, yeah. you, you faced Kashner during the uh, some of these Yankees yeah. games. Any fear of Kashner at all? No. <laughs> I looked. I looked. I was. I looked lustily when I saw his name in the box score. Is facing the Yankees happily. There, there was also not. There was just not a lot of scrambling. Like they, uh, as the especially as the bullpen started to get wore down. If Darwin's and Hernandez hadn't come in, who's my favorite Red Sox pitcher. If he hadn't kind of emerged out of nowhere, they really would have been in trouble because they didn't have anybody like that on the team. Then Workman kind of became a pseudo decent closer. I don't trust it, but at least he was competent for two months. But Standing that bullpen could have been worse. Was shaky. It didn't do anything. Everyone else was yeah. doing something. And they didn't really have a lot of prospects to trade either, which because they had already traded a lot of them. I still think the sale trade was a really good trade and the guys that came up that they gave up. Yeah. Um, 
you still do Nobody that. Nobody set the world on fire yet. Nah, you give up prospects. You've up three major prospects. Odds are two of them aren't going to make it. You know, and yeah, for, and the guy was the guy's. You know, one of the best pitchers. Well, maybe not now, but he was one of the best pitchers in the American League. He won your World Series. You, you can't question that trade. That was worth it. My biggest. Now, this has happened before they won the World Series, but I'll never understand how he missed on Verlander, who he was with. And the, and the Yankees, too. Like, the Red Sox and Yankees yeah. missing on Verlander is kind of inconceivable because the the it just wasn't a lot. of It wasn't an overwhelming amount of money. And the book on him just seemed to be like he was done and that yeah. he was headed toward another point of his career. And, and it's been the complete opposite. I don't know how both of those teams missed that. Two teams that needed a guy like that. Well, I think the Astros might have a little uh, little Patriots in it when it comes to pitchers. They oh, to be no, there. no, a lot of Pilates. Um, uh, I think there's a little something going on. Come there on. Spin. I've seen things about like the spin rate, you know, Verlander didn't look like he was done, but he's not the, of the Verlander of today. So I, I have a few questions. Well, I, the organization I, that had Mike Scott too, don't forget. I'm not saying he's. I'm not saying he's got sandpaper. God, on you're thumb, just accusing everybody. This is terrible. Well, I'm getting ready for the playoffs and hopefully a showdown with Houston. So I'm throwing <laughs> down the gauntlet already. They do. They they do have a specific thing they look for with pitchers that they just hammer home, right? With yeah. the, like certain pitches and ability um, to use pantar or something, something <laughs> shady there. I love it. You really are in yeah. playoff form. You've eliminated ready, the Red baby. Sox. Now you're ready. You've targeted yeah, the Astros. I'm, I'm stepping over your dead carcass and I'm moving on to Houston. <laughs> That's where all my focus has to be. Well, this Red Sox thing, the whole concept of a five-year grace period, I think the internet has basically ruined it. There is no grace yeah, period apparently. anymore. 108 wins and see you later. Right? Enjoy the ring. Get out. My whole thing is, the more I thought about it and the more I watched the team this year, like Belichick would not have signed a Valdi and Price. He just would have been like, thanks guys. Right, absolutely. Oh, I have yeah, a party no gift for you. for Belichick, right? Belichick absolutely one million percent would have traded Jackie Bradley Jr. last winter. Yes, he would have done that in five seconds and put either Betts or Benintendi in center, and just kind of figured it out as it went along. And and I think Belichick would have tried to lock up Mookie even before, you know this became a thing about his contract because he would have been worried that it would have weighed on him. He just would have tried to take care of it in some way. Yeah. Hey, here's where I stand though. As long as they have Devers, Mookie and Betts and JD and I, Ben and 10 day, I'm, I'm not going to give up on, but you, let's just say you can get his stock right now. It's available. He regressed a bit. Yes. It's available. The Ben and 10 day stock is available on the internet, but just with those four, you should just be a 90 win team. Yeah, they, like that. It's they, amazing, really, when you look at the look at their roster and their talent, and like they always seem to be. Now they've kind of packed it in, but for a good portion of the season, they were never out of games with that offense. Yeah, and there'd be times I'd be flipping back and forth between the Yankees channel and the Red Sox channel, and you know they're down big, and I'm like, oh, this is good, and then you turn it back, and they're like only down a run or whatever, they're still in it. So with that lineup, it's amazing, really, that their record is as mediocre is as mediocre as it is. Their World pit- Series hangover, I guess, whatever. It was that, but it's it's really the pitching. They're, yeah, the starters pitching, weren't good enough and the bullpen was horrible. Yeah, it's funny because everybody blamed the bullpen, but the starters were equally horrific. You know, like their uh, their staff ERA for most of the year was like 4'8", 
488, something like that. Now yeah, it's down a little great. bit to 47, but um, they're just giving up five runs a game. It's really hard to win when you're doing that. Yeah. And then they were losing a lot of a lot of those tight ones that as your team has shown over and over again, your team in a close game, you feel like, oh, this is great. It's three, three in the seventh. We're winning. We're, yeah. We have five, we have five relievers we're gonna trot out. And we have a bunch of guys having a career year. Boy, you want to talk about um hmm candidates. It's a couple <laughs> on your team. How about your dude Gio, who's one of the best hitters in the American League, who hit like two ten last year? Hey, he was a diamond in the rough, undiscovered gem. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what Cashman does. Doesn't find is that what he does? They have, this, they have a brilliant analytics department. You know, oh. they work on a swing, change things up. Yankee Stadium, more friendly confines for him. You know, you have MVP DJ, DJ Lemayhu, right? Is he an MVP? Can- is he an actual MVP candidate or no? He should be. Yes, he's he's not going to win it because Trout's going to win it. But he legitimately is. He's legitimately the Yankees MVP. He's been humongous for him. Is Mike Trout really going to win the MVP again? Yeah, probably unanimously. He's made a big difference because without him, they would have only won 67 games instead of 77. No, they're, they have 67 wins right now. They're 67 oh. and 78. Oh, so I guess without him, they would have only won 57 or 50. So that's good. It's great. Hope he enjoys that contract and always coming in, you know, 20 games behind the Astros or the A's. Good luck with that. I don't understand how somebody can be the most valuable player if their team doesn't even go 500. What were they? How yeah, I don't were they? Get that either. What What was their value? That 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 the team instead of sucking really hard just sucked. Right. Just it's like man, mediocre. if we didn't have Trout, man, we just would have sucked. Right. Instead, we just sucked. <laughs> like right. I don't understand it. Yeah. They should just have. They need to create another award so there's some way to capture what actually happened in this season over just like the here was the individual player of the year. Just change it to player of the year because the whole notion of MVP, which, you know, goes back a hundred years or whatever, like it's not voted on as the most valuable to their team. No, but keep that. Most, keep most valuable. Tra- just tra- have another award for like oh, yeah. keep our individual player of the year is so-and-so. Right. It's like, yeah, he's going to win it. Go. Everybody says it's like unanimous that he's going to win it again. It's like uh, in the Oscars. It's like, and the nominees are Keanu Reeves for John Wick 3, because without him, instead of a B minus, that movie would have been a D minus. He had an unbelievable war. I don't get That's it. That's right. So your team, you have a chance to win a lot of games. You're 95 and 50 right now. You put like a yeah. puncher's chance to win 110 games. You had an incredible amount of injuries, but... The big thing, and I only know this because he's on my fantasy team, was you got Judge going again on top yep. of all the other he's guys. Been turn- he's been really hot the past couple of weeks. That's huge because he was looking lost there for a while. But he, he, if he turns it on, if he, if in the postseason, like he's had it going on now, it's they're legit dangerous. And Paxton looks good now again. Mm. And Tanaka, aside from the Red Sox, has has looked good of late too. So. And all of a sudden, Jay Happ was great the other night. That was just worries me. They'll be Don't like, trust oh, God, him. Jay, Jay Happ's back. He'll start a game and give up 15 runs in two innings. You just have to make sure Paxton stays healthy for another eight weeks. So you have 50% chance. That's hope. Kyle, Fingers crossed. I'm going to ask Kyle. He's young. He's a 20-something. How many years do you think it's been since the Yankees won a World Series? <laughs> he barely follows baseball. Not barely. Uh, they lose to the Marlins? That happened. That did happen. That did happen. That did happen. Yes, 
they, they won one subsequent. Was it 2008, 2009? I don't know. 2009. Yeah, okay. It's the 10-year anniversary <laughs> of Jacko's last World Series. It is. A That's full true. decade of no World Series for this, you. This is this is ridiculous. You Did you Come even on. make a World Series this decade? <laughs> did you? You did 2009 it. is their uh, last appearance, I believe. You're O for the decade. Sure. So far, it's unbelievable. Yeah. No wonder, wow. no wonder you were taunting the Red Sox on Twitter about being eliminated. Absolutely, I've, I've got to have something. You know, I, I got to start somewhere. So, when you look back at the highlights of this decade for the Yankees, <laughs> is it like a really, <laughs> a really strong ALDS game? What do you have oh on your God. DVR? Just like the 2014 ALDS? This is this is outrageous. I'm not, I'm not even going to respond to this. I'm not going to dignify this with the response. The best thing about about the Red Sox Yankees rivalry is that when one of us isn't in it, we still have a team that's in it because the team is basically anyone playing the Yankees or the Red Sox. Of course. Of and course. now, so people are like, hey, Bill, you had a great last 15 years. You won four World Series. It's got to be weird not to have your guys in there this year. I'm like, well, I have all the guys playing the Yankees. I have right. everyone else in the American League. It's actually, this will be, be fun. You'll be all in on the Rays or the A's or the Twins and then the and the Astros and God willing the Dodgers or the Braves or whoever. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you win four in fifteen sure. years, you get you start getting used to it. You know, it's right. like getting scrambled eggs every morning where you just kind of take them for granted and then one day you're out of eggs. Kind of I mean, look when around. You win four in hundred, when you win four over a course of 103 years, of course, it's really going to be it's going to be memorable for you. Listen, definitely. I don't know how you measure this stuff, but I measure it by <laughs> this century. What's happening? Right. I, I can't yeah. worry about last century. Last century is in the books. It already happened. <laughs> I just think about it as this century. What about and, the present day, though? What about this year? Well, you're looking pretty good. Yeah, so, there you go. Who there are you? Go. Who are you afraid I'm not here of? To talk about the past decade, I'm here to talk about <laughs> now. I'm not here to talk about the past I'm decade. I'm not here to talk about the past decade. I'm here to talk about now. 09 was when the Yankees won the World Series. And then yep. on my podcast, I sneak attacked you with this rant you had about Marion Rivera that you got mad right. at Marion Rivera in May. And you were genuinely mad at me. And then I, no. you were. You were mad. No, I, I knew you were mad. That. No, you no. were mad. I could tell no. you were mad on the phone. I was like, oh, God, I made Jacko actually mad on a podcast. <laughs> No, you did not. I was it was all in good fun. I my Mariano rant is legendary. My rants are really legendary. No nobody likes me when I'm happy on these things and you know, gleeful and cocky. So the rant was great. It was good. It's good for my brand. You know, I went to <laughs> <laughs> I went to a Metallica concert on Friday night what? in San Francisco. Yeah, I did. And I I Why? hated ah, it's a long story. And uh and I used to hate Enter Sandman forever. Sure. Because it was the Rivera, it was like the it was like the the sound of death. It was like you're down a run, you're down two runs, and then that fucking song, it's like, all right, pack it up. Let's might as well go to the car. Right. And then everything flipped because I don't know if you remember, but he blew the save in game four and game five of the LCS. Now yeah, it's a song that makes that. me happy. I actually right. like hearing it now. It brings me to happier place. Speaking of happier places, before we go, um, yeah. can we can we get your thoughts on where the Democratic Party is right now? Well, it's a it's a it's a good question. I mean, it's poor Joe Biden. Like, you know, they 
they're making him run for president, and he gave a because he's got he's the most electable, I guess, on paper. And he gave an interview to the Washington Post, I believe it was either the New York Times or the Washington Post, and uh, um, they're both fake news. Can't tell them apart. Um, whichever <laughs> one it was, and they're like, you know, basically, why are you running for president? He's like, well, I didn't expect to, you know, I didn't really want to, but I guess I have to. And it just makes you know all these gaffes, and he's out there, and he's confused. He keeps calling Angela Merkel like Margaret Thatcher, and it's like really like terrible. So I don't I don't know if like Elizabeth Warren, who's the media darling and the darling of the left wing, you know, she's a semi more electable Bernie, I guess, because she sort of steals all his positions. Um, I don't know if she's going to be able to catch him. I think that's where the heart of the Democratic Party is, but I think their head is with Biden. So I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, there's some polls out now where he's he's kind of weak in New Hampshire, and, you know, she's a senator from a neighboring state. So if he doesn't win in New Hampshire, and, and I don't know if he's really beloved in Iowa, and he loses in Iowa, and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're a front runner until you start getting wounded, and when you're wounded and you're not looking that electable anymore, like you know, he he could tip over pretty quick, and it might be like, you know, it might be head for the exit time for old Joe. So I don't see Elizabeth Warren winning a national election against Trump, but I've been wrong before, and I could be wrong again. So. Um, I think Biden could beat him. I don't know that Elizabeth Warren can. Do you think he's going to stumble in New Hampshire because he thinks he's in Vermont? <laughs> well, he did think that already. I know. I mean, that's really like that was really like eye opening and shocking, quite frankly, because while in a normal any other time you could maybe confuse New Hampshire and Vermont, they're next door. They're both you know rustic rural New England states with autumn leaves and maple syrup. You could confuse that, but. Everybody on the earth, like my eight-year-old daughter knows that New Hampshire has the first primary in the country. So when you know you're in a, like campaigning, presumably in the first primary state and not in Vermont, where you wouldn't campaign for any reason, that like I don't understand how you could confuse that. That was really troubling. It's not great. It doesn't bode well for Joe. There's been a lot. And then like- he was like at this debate about climate change last week, and all of a sudden his eye was bleeding. See that? No, I didn't see that. Oh my Jesus. god! Yeah, it's some sort of thing where he's like, I don't know what it was from, but his eye was bleeding, and he just always looks like he's half out of it. And you know, the guy's seventy-four years old. You can't blame him for being out of it. And it's rigorous to be on the campaign trail. It's a it's a young person's game generally. Because of course, every Democratic front runner is like eighty. But um, you know, he he's really like made a lot of mistakes and gaffes. Of course, you know, our current president is not exactly a great he's, wordsmith. He's gaff free. So, um, you know, that's going to be a fantastic debate. I made a joke about they should just give them a puzzle and the winner gets the win of the debate, you know, yeah. but uh, they start a clock. Okay, first one to finish this puzzle. They're like, oh, geez, uh, start with the corners, you know. Um, it's troubling. It's really troubling. You know, uh, my dad was on my podcast Saturday, who's three years younger than Joe, and he called Demarius Thomas Demetrius four times during the podcast. <laughs> now... I love my dad and and it's it doesn't mean he's like his brain is super slipping, but if he was on the campaign trail, that kind of stuff would be happening every day. And I just think with Biden, it's gonna get worse, not better. Like he's already had so many little minor slips and screw ups and whatever. And we have we're not even really in the rigorous part of this whole campaigning thing yet, where you're on the road for a year, you start getting worn down physically and I'm with you. I actually think this could go south pretty fast. What's funny though is you look at the I'm looking at uh on Sportsbook the the odds for the to win the next presidency. And now Elizabeth Warren is the second favorite behind Trump is still minus 110. 
Warren's four to one. Biden is now six to one. Yeah. So he's so not even the favorite. Know, he starts taking on water like that. You know, if you're the front runner and you, you get wounded and you, you know, like it, it happens pretty quick where all of a sudden it's, it's like, look at Howard Dean. Yeah. You know, Howard Dean was leading in all these polls. Everybody loved him. And then, you know, where was it? He lost in Iowa or whatever and or fell apart in Iowa. And it was like, that's all she wrote. It, it happens quick and the media will turn on you at a time and they start to see the new, you know, hot candidate and they, they will gravitate towards him or her. And that's going to be all she wrote for old Joe. Then Joe's six to one. What's crazy is Andrew Yang is 15 to one. Andrew Yang is not going to be the president. Bernie Sanders <laughs> is eighteen not. to one, and Kamala Harris is twenty to one. Booker is seventy five to one. Andrew Yang is fifteen to one, and Bernie is eighteen to one. I, I'm just reading you the that's, odds. That's ridiculous. You think there's been money from the Yang gang trying to juice his there odds? Must be. The Yang gang must be betting heavily. That that's ridiculous. There's yeah. no way Andrew Yang is going to be president. Yang gang's an NBA fan. Yeah, I think we should just call him Yang gang, not even call him Andrew Yang. Like he's just Yang gang. Andrew Yang's this guy, I know he's like a tech entrepreneur or whatever, and yeah. he immediately is like, I'm going to just run for president. Like, can, can you run for Congress first? Can you run for Senate? Can you run for city Found council? the Trump Anything. model. Right, but Trump was Trump is unique in more ways than one. But I mean, you know, Trump's a celebrity figure and a developer and had a national presence. No, nobody knows who Andrew Yang is, that you're just going to go from being a tech entrepreneur to being the president. It's just not going to happen. Well, I was thinking, I tell me... Tell me if this is completely inconceivable Trump would do this. Don Jr. decides to run as a Democrat for president. <laughs> okay. He gets Trump gets all his people to now Don Jr. screws up the whole Democratic side. And if Don Jr. wins, then Trump's just going against Don Jr. for the election. He wins either way. He's grooming him anyway. Um, no, I don't think you'd get a lot of Democratic primary voters to go for Don Jr. You don't think even so? Even if he did a big, no, even, no, I don't no, think I'm, I'm not, that heel turn. But if he doesn't win, which he wouldn't, um, but he's still in the mix de debating all these people and screwing things up. It actually is kind of legal, right? You could do that. He, you could. Well, yeah. I mean, in Vermont, I remember in Vermont years ago, Patrick Leahy, who still is their senator, I believe, and he was running for office and the there was a guy that was like this farmer and this basically like this uh, documentary people, I think they'd made a documentary about this guy who was this 80 year old farmer in Vermont, Fred Tuttle, I believe was the name. I could be wrong about that. And they ran the guy in the Republican primary and he ran against some like stuffed shirt Republican. And this guy was a farmer and he kept talking about farming and they got enough votes to win the Republican primary. And then he was Leahy's opponent. And all he did was talk about how wonderful Leahy was. <laughs> and they had these debates and the guy Leahy was like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And Fred Tuttle was like, right on. It's like, well, there Sounds go. great. Yeah. Well, maybe that'll be what the Trumps do. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Johnny, we're, we're going to definitely have you back a bunch of times over these baseball playoffs because... Excellent. Hopefully I, I'll be around for a while. Let's hope. Well, I'm just so happy for you that your baseball team actually has a chance to win the World Series. I know what that's felt like for me, and I'm happy I get to share <laughs> oh that God. with you. Um, so good luck, and thanks for coming on. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, buddy. All right, Sean Penn is coming up in one second. First, I want to tell you about Peloton. If you can't find a workout that keeps you engaged, Peloton is an, an immersive cardio experience with real-time features that will always keep you coming back. This is like, we, we got one, I think, maybe two years ago, and it reminded me of like being in Total Recall where the future has arrived and you're not just riding a quote-unquote bike. 
but you're actually watching a TV screen and you're, you can be in all these different locations and you could ride with other people. Um, my wife goes on the Peloton and, uh, and watches random shows that she watches and is involved with all these things. She, she absolutely loves it. Um, the key, it's not big. You can, you can put it in your little office or you can even put it on the side in the living room and, and it's really unintrusive. You can bring it out, pull it back. Uh, it does not overwhelm whatever the space is. With its compact four by two size, it can fit in virtually any space in your home. One subscription is all you need to get unlimited classes for the entire family. No commute, no reservations, thousands of rides you can take live or on demand anytime, all for less than the cost of a studio class. Why would you want to like get in your car and go somewhere? You can just stay in your house and watch TV and do and do this. With a variety of themes, difficulty levels, and training programs, experience something new every time you sweat. Right now, they're offering a limited time offer, $100 off accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike and get a great cardio workout at home. Go to onepeloton.com, P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com, and use promo code SIMMONS. That's my name to get started, onepeloton.com. All right, not many people could get me to come in for a Saturday. This is one of them. They offer champagne. I'm just, I'm just taking it. I don't care what day it is. Although, if it had been Sunday football, I don't know. That would have been tough because I don't even go to my daughter's soccer games during Sunday football. Nice to have you, though. Good to be here. Um, I had David Spade on two weeks ago, and we were talking about when you did the the tattoo thing with him on SNL in like '95. And one of the great things that I loved about that was it was like, wait, Sean Penn is funny. Does he, is, does he hide this from us? What's going on? Like there was this whole other side of you and I've always been fat. I felt like you've been in my life my whole life, but um, there are all these layers to you, but the the humor side is kind of the underrated layer. Cause that was fast times was basically your breakthrough. Well, I, and you were hilarious in that. <laughs> For, well, I'm not going to accuse myself of being hilarious in anything, but I, I do find <laughs> myself um, ludicrous at times. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I, I have heard from people that I've spent time with that, um, that, that among the things I, I subconsciously keep private is any level of humor I might have, especially about myself. Yeah. Well, you had, you'd had the very, starting like the mid eighties, this guy's a serious actor. This guy, he really takes, takes the craft, you know, to the fullest and all that stuff. But I always felt like, you know, I, I mean, I know that was genuine, but at the same time, I always felt like you could have done, what, two more comedies, something like that. Did you ever turn down a comedy you could have done? Well, that's a good question. Only in the sense that I was offered so very few of them, and because you get typecast. Well, it, it, I think what happened because I had done Fast Times at Ridgemont High very early on, and so on. I I th I think part of you know this quote unquote serious actor impression people because one. one does take hopefully what they do quite seriously and work hard to try to be better at it as you go along. Yeah. Um, yet at the same time as all of anything was being said, whether it had been, you know, he's funny or he's, you know, brooding. Um, once you are being talked personally about or assumed to be something for the first time in your life in a public way, it, it is certainly going to be a one true part of you, what's yeah. being said, and you don't want any more to be public. It, it kind of like 
you know, the, there's always this idea that you want to take over, the get ahead of the narrative. And I, I never wanted to get ahead of the narrative by myself. I just wanted to say, okay, this is what's assumed. I'll let them see that much. And I'll hold the rest for myself and use it as I will as an actor and yeah. maintain it in my life. But it it was very, and still is, because I think, um, you know, I'm a guy who didn't speak in public places by right. you know, to in, till I, till after, till, at all, not a word, till after I was five years old. But I was very verbal within my family and a place where I was very comfortable. It wasn't as though I was unable to or couldn't string thoughts together, yeah. you know, five-year-old thoughts, though they be. But I think once <clears throat> that, 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 that I was shy and to, 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 uh, to see other people get a degree of fame and have people talk about them, and certainly I had talked about famous people before I became someone that was in the public eye, it's still, I, it, once it was me, it was like, wait, wait, that, no, 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 no. I didn't, I didn't buy into this. I want right. to be an actor, but not this. And uh, it was kind of uh, horrifying. Well, and, I'm sure it got complicated yeah. that you started dating one of the most famous people in the world at the time. Yeah, that certainly, uh, certainly, yes, that, that did complicate things, uh, <laughs> you know, further at that time, yeah. Um, going backwards, you grew up as a Hollywood kid. Your dad was a director. Yeah. And you're rising up with this whole awesome class of actors that um, a lot of them became really famous. But Tom Cruise is in there and Rob Lowe and Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez. Who, who else am I leaving out? But you guys well, all knew each other. Well, yes and no. I mean, I all the guys you just mentioned are younger than I am. And <clears throat> I was aware, I, I and I've heard stories about me and some of them that that didn't happen because oh, I hadn't met stories? them because yeah. I hadn't met them yet. So we all, we, some of the that group, like the the, uh, the Sheen brothers, and, uh, Estev, uh, I knew them as the both as the Estevez brothers at the time. But uh, they, uh, the, I Emilio and I were good friends. Charlie was very close with my younger brother. Yeah, um, which one? With oh, Christopher. Chris, yeah, and. And and so them I knew, but again I think Emilio was one or two years behind me in school. And you know, at those ages, those are significant yeah. differences. And certainly from Charlie's age or Rob Lowe, those guys they were they were much younger than I was. <clears throat> but we came from the same place, and then uh, they started working. I think soon after I did. And although Rob Lowe, I was aware of him in Malibu because he was a, a kid actor. Yeah, and he was the only one that we knew of but i didn't know him until years later but you guys are all showing up for the same auditions and stuff like that right no i was all the uh, they would have been you know it, it was that it was a significant that was f like a five-year age difference between most of them oh really is that me. Nice? so no the people i was at auditions with would have been like you know kevin bacon in new york or or out here um uh nick cage who was younger than me but he was he was starting around the same time um uh, Helen Hunt, uh, I used to see at auditions. Really? I was kind of a, from that few years older than the, yeah. than the other group. Bunch. So then Taps happens, and that becomes, there's these different movies in the early 80s where it's like these ensemble casts with all these people that the trajectory is headed a certain way. And I think Taps was probably the first one of those, but then The Outsiders happened and a whole bunch of them. Well, and to me what was significant about Taps was really before Taps. It was that when I first started to become an actor. 
I remember that, you know, reading about Nick Nolte, who I think was about 39 years old when he played the high school kid, Tommy Jordash in Rich Man, Poor Man. Oh, yeah. And was, I guess, the equivalent of James Dean to my generation of actor, you know, in that, in that moment. And when I read about him, and he was working steadily in the theater till he was in his late 30s, that was what I assumed would be the trajectory. Yeah. Because nobody of our age group, by ours, I mean the group that I mentioned, you know, being kind of part of. No, 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 there were no movies being made with leading young actors like that. And I don't think there really had been since James Dean. If you look at really what was going mm. on in the culture, it was a, a older, it was, it would have been like Richard Gere would have been the youngest kind of actor. And that's, right. you know, significantly older in that, that relative to that age than I was. So you didn't look at it like, well, well, here comes my film career. You're going to work in the theater a long time, and that was great by me. And then Ordinary People happened, and that was Timothy Hutton. Yeah. And him becoming a star is what got studios interested to make movies around him. And so that led to taps. That led to, I think, this young generation of actors because he didn't— only, you know, uh, star in that movie, Ordinary People. He won the Academy Award for it. And all of a sudden, you had, you know, the movie people taking seriously this the, the possibility of younger actors again. And that started, and so I got in at a really lucky moment. You know, I think all of those of us that got to, you know, continue careers out of that time had a really lucky moment because two years before that, nobody was making movies we could have played leading roles in. Right. You didn't go for Ordinary People, did you? Oh, yeah. I climbed the fence at Warner Brothers and snuck into Redford's office. And, did you really? Uh, yeah, because I had no agent. <laughs> I wanted that like hell. Yeah, I read the book inside and out. And, um, yeah, that among others. Yeah, I was a. I knew all the best spots in the studio lots to climb the fence because I didn't have an agent. Sometimes people would kick you out, but a lot of times they'd sort of... Why didn't you have an agent? I, I could you just not, couldn't get one. I couldn't get arrested. I was the worst auditioner in the world. And, <laughs> um, just, just, I think I had a chip on my shoulder, too, about doing that. And I was doing a lot of theater, and I would try to get people to come down, you know, see me play a character rather than hold some sides and, you know, pretend I knew what the material was. So you climb the fence, and you head toward Redford's office. And what happens? I sit down on the couch in the outer office. There's a few other actors there who are there legitimately, <laughs> who have appointments. And just before I'm, the first person that noticed me sitting there was Robert Redford, who walked by. And, uh, and he, he, he said, hi, how are you? Kind of looked at me, and I thought, you know, in my mind, it was, that, that's right, that's right, I'm the guy you're supposed to cast. Yeah. Um, but instead, he was just very cordial and assuming I was among those on the list. And by the time they got through the three actors that had appointments, the uh, casting director's um, secretary uh, realized that I might not be you were uh, an imposter. Uh, supposed to be there. And I think I was asked to, you know. How'd back. you get taps? Because that was a big movie. Yeah. I had... I, I kind of gave it up here because in Los Angeles because I couldn't get represented and um, I'd, I had about 800 bucks cash and bought a $100 plane ticket to New York and put $300 down a security deposit on an apartment and um, not knowing what next would happen, uh, went, went with my, my, my high school 
buddy Joe Vitarelli, <coughs> who later became a great film composer. And we went to, to New York together, got a place. And three days later, uh, just as lucky as I could be, um, through, through a, a, a friend, got sent up on an audition uh, for the lead in the Broadway play, and I got it. So I was in New York a whole three days before I got a lead in the Broadway show, a show called Heartland. Mm. And the, they were casting taps at that time, and the casting director was a diligent theater goer, and she came and saw it and asked for me to come in and meet with uh, the director, Harold Becker, and Timothy Hutton, who at that point was cast and was, uh, I think, had a little bit of a say in uh, who, who he felt he w would want to work with in it. And uh, we hit it off, and uh, that's how it happened. It's, fu it's funny, you two and Cruz, yeah. in, uh, I mean, that movie was almost 40 years, but... And then Spicoli happens in Fast Times, and I just know you as the Spicoli guy. Right. And then when you started being in other rooms, like, oh, look at Spicoli. <laughs> but, I mean, that yeah. movie was such a, an important, influential early 80s teen movie, and it kind of predated what would happen with John Hughes and all those, you know. And then that character, people just loved it. It tapped into something. Yeah, which I think was really a, a tribute to Cameron Crowe and Amy Heckerling, Art yeah. Linson, Don Phillips, and those guys who, who really put that movie together. Because um, for me, it was, you know, it, it, at that point, it just seemed normal that these these movies were starting to happen. Yeah. You know, you didn't know if you were in something that was going to hit a, uh, a a common nerve, you know, whether it was a drama or a comedy. Or in that case, I was already in my early 20s. Yeah. And I I had... I had been alienated from high school when I was in high school, so right. I certainly couldn't have spoken uh, um, with authority about anything that was going on culturally uh, at any time in any high school. So I certainly wouldn't have known that we were, you know, hitting a button with a lot of people. So then you get Bad Boys, and then then it really takes off because you're actually carrying Bad Boys, and I ride for Bad Boys to the death. <laughs> it's such a good premise, and I'm always amazed people hadn't seen it. It's like these two guys end up in juvie together, and they hate each other, and they have a real axe to grind, and it's going to go down for an hour. It's just great. Well, you know that you're getting to a certain age when they're making the sequel to a Bad Boys that already had been made that has nothing to do with the Bad Boys <laughs> that you made 20 years earlier and 30 years earlier than the, whatever it is. <laughs> but usually it goes badly because if there's two movies that have the same name and you love one but the other's awful— Right. And you get excited if you're flicking channels, but that one I actually like the other bad boys too. They went two for two with that one. Yeah, I didn't. I I didn't get to see. I hear. I think the sequel just came out. Maybe I saw. Well, there's the another. There's a third sequel coming. Oh, out. it's a third. Yeah. One. So after Bad yeah. Boys, you got to now you're in control. You get to start doing things you want to do. Then I was in a pretty unique position because, uh, you know, based on the roles that I was able to get they turned out that people paid attention to at that time they were very different it yeah. was calling so i think that i benefited from a perception of a kind of diversity of or, or an ability to uh, you know do more than one thing <clears throat> is there a competitiveness going on with all the young guys back then are you all measuring each other up everybody's getting these great roles great movies is it like sports almost you're sizing each other up here's here's my answer to that question yeah. I remember doing a movie where uh, uh, I did this movie, Mystic River, that uh, Clint Eastwood directed, 
I've, and, I've heard of it. And the cast was pretty much people I had known or known of my entire acting career really? because we were, you, you know, Kevin Bacon and I had, had done a, a, a worked in the theater in New York together and, and used uh, with your brother, and Kim too. Robbins and, 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 and Marcia Gay Harden. They were all people that I either, you know, it was the timing was similar generation. And I remember recognizing now everybody had kids. They'd already established their career. They were, uh, and there was no sense of competition. There was support. And I remember the, the good feeling of that. Mm. When I go back and I think of the earlier times, I never did well with uh, paying attention to competition. Um, when I paid attention to competition playing tennis, I tensed up and lost. If I wasn't just dancing, it was no good. Yeah. And so I didn't like sports for that reason. That's what led me out of sports. I loved the playing of them, but I hated the competition of them. And still today, it stresses me. Like, I'll love to watch, you know, Brady do something that is beyond um, imagination. But the stress as it's about to happen, it dominates my experience. Well, that's why you like surfing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because that's just you it's dancing peaceful. with the wave. Yeah. But I, uh, what always gave me confidence and never, and, and, and liberated me from ever feeling competitive is that it was never going to keep you from having a career if there were two, three guys in front of you who were at least as good, if not better than you. Yeah. What I was confident in is that I would go to the theater or I would go to the movies and it was never that I thought I was so good. I just thought I was better than them. Yeah. And, and I don't mean all of them, but enough of them that I'd have a career. Yeah. And that if I got a little better the next day, I'd be better than more of them, you know? And so it was a competition with myself. And, and, and I, I look back on now, anything that I've ever done in my life where I invested in competition went wrong and didn't feel good. What's an example? Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm going to go to something too personal too fast. Let's come back to this it. Is, no, come on. <laughs> an example, I'm trying to think of Competition. Well, I'll come back to it. Yeah, you might have to because it gets it gets it goes. Well, I remember Falcon point. the Snowman was you and Hutton, and at that point, Hutton was still the Golden Boy, who won the Oscar, but he's got all these, and that was basically you, yeah, you but, and him leading that movie. But it was more my buddy Tim and his buddy Sean, yeah. uh, doing something that would not have even happened were it not for his involvement. So I was just, you know, at that point, I was seeing myself as kind of like. Oh, I'll be that guy. I'll be like the, the, you know, I'll get a lot of great parts as the buddy and never have to carry the damn thing. Right, right, right. That sounds good to me. That one, I, I don't know how much of this was intentional, but at some point during the 80s, it became clear you were trying to have a career and try to do all these different types of parts. Because I think it could go one of two ways, especially with the young actor, where they're either just grabbing parts and trying to be the lead. You actually seem like you were more interested in Oh, that character looks interesting to me. And you were putting together kind of this, this list of different types of people you could play. And I remember in that movie, I was like, wow, that's, that's Sean Penn? What's going on? He's like a different guy in this one. I always like when actors do that. I, yeah, I don't mean to kiss your ass, but, no, but, I, but, I, but I appreciate it. I, I think, though, that if I were describing that, it would be a very nonlinear because you you you, you 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 couldn't assume to 
get offered exactly the thing that was of interest to you humanly at that moment each time. You were going to get a good script or you were not going to get a good script. But as you decided between when I got in the luxury of being able to choose between things or to be able to do things and, and, and especially not have to audition anymore, which was yeah. for me a you know, standard humiliation. <laughs> um, when it became, you know, a career in essence was being offered to me, I think that you're, you, you go in this nonlinear way, but once you choose something, it kind of sets the course for what you will or won't do in the next thing because you're looking to tie a thread together in a, that it, so that as much as possible, it's like if your whole career were, were one movie telling all the stories of the things that you wanted to express yeah. through characters. It's like a, short, a book of short stories almost. Y yeah, that's right, where you're looking for some kind of cohesion uh, in, in a through line in the, in the, that ties them all together. Because you never did you know, the superhero movie or the, you know, the movie that had a chance to become an action franchise or you were just, yeah. you never went down that road. Well, I remember the, the an actor who I'm a huge fan of, Joel Edgerton. Yeah, he's uh, good. He, he, he had a funny thing he said when he first came to Los Angeles. He said, I'm, I'm just trying to get through this without putting the underwear on the outside of my pants. <laughs> And, I, and, and I, I thought, well, that articulates kind of what I've been trying to do, too. It seemed like you had, just watching from afar that whole time, a really complicated relationship with fame, where you liked all the things that came with all the parts you were able to do and all the different movies you were able to be in, but you didn't want the other stuff. And the other stuff you are just dealing with. <clears throat> but you wished it hadn't been there. Well, I... I don't want to lead you into the section of our discussion that talks about the book, but this question leads me Let's to do it, it a little bit. So we we know that there have been, you know, we, we, we all have that moment where we're saying, gosh, it's just not like the old days in some way. Some, you know, where we look back with great nostalgia in mm. uh, periods. Um, in a way that we might not look back with great nostalgia, you know, on the period of the founding fathers, if our skin was a little darker and we had a family history we were aware of. Yeah. All of these kinds of things. And, yeah, and we're, we're, we're very quick to be in the culture of complaint in the times within which we live and not see the things that have improved. And it's a struggle. I mean, I have my big struggle with those things. I like the culture of complaint. That's a good, I'm going to borrow that. But then... When I look back, okay, I'm born in 1960, and I realized as I was writing these two books, yeah, and this character who was born at that time too, um, that it 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 is a kind of epoch that is a is in its own way what I call call the 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 generation of the ludicrous. You know, we had, I remember when I put out the first Bob Honey book, it was often considered absurdist fiction. And, I, and in a lot of ways, I went along with that. But, uh, you know, absurdist fiction had been done and very well. I think this is ludicrous fiction. Yeah. <laughs> it's ludicrous usage of language. It's ludicrous um, politics and ludicrous cultural uh, uh, um, invasions of kind of this, like what I do consider a kind of disease of celebrity. And it, you can mark it from 1960 forward. It didn't start with 
the current administration where we were looking at things that were ludicrous. And I don't mean to, uh, you know, use that word glibly because it also includes horrifying things. The Vietnam War, uh, um, the those who opposed the civil rights movement, all of the horrifying things that we've seen and all the horrifying things that have culminated in the moment we're at, which is, of course, peak evil is what's happening environmentally. Yeah. So we can talk about what everybody's doing now and what this, but it really becomes a kind of look in the mirror era. And so I think that growing up in the age of ludicrous <clears throat> is kind of where I define myself. Um, and is, and as an actor, it, it took a long time to get to a place where you, where I understood why I was making the choices, why I was diversifying the palette in the ways I was. Yeah. Because you don't really know where things are going until, uh, for me, it took a long time. I mean, it took, it, you know, what, what for, what I would hope for someone to have occur in their early thirties. Um, you know, a basic level of, of, of a matured sense of oneself and their surroundings. I took, took me in, well into my 50s. Hey, let's talk about Stance. Just a few years ago, no one ever talked about socks, but then one brand absolutely changed the game. Stance's designs are incredible, insanely comfortable. Their durability is unmatched. In fact, in a recent abrasion test, Stance's basic casual sock was more than three times more durable than its competitors from Stance's casual everyday styles like no-shows, and cruise to their performance athletic product. There's nothing like Stance. Buy them by the pair or sign up for a subscription based on your preferences. They're passionate about giving back from their annual support of Socks for Heroes, which sends fresh socks to deployed military to their annual sponsorship of the World Adaptive Surf Championship. They do that. They do awesome collabs with other brands and artists and cultural icons, Pulp Fiction, Donovan Mitchell, The Grateful Dead, Alan Iverson. Star Wars. Um, in Star Wars. And uh, more importantly, Kyle and I like them because they're durable. Absolutely. We don't like socks that are going to have a hole in them in three months. We like we like socks. We like, I don't want to have to worry about my socks. I just want to throw them in my drop drawer, put them on, and I don't have to worry that they're going to have a hole in them three months later. You won't put anything on your feet again. There's a reason they changed the sock game forever. I want you to try them. Get a free pair of socks with your purchase at stance.com slash BS. Because if they're not stance, they are just socks. What was the most unfair misconception about you from when you started dating Madonna all the way through the 90s that, that people thought about you? I think probably still is that with some notable exceptions that I didn't take note of them or their existence or their thoughts about it ever. Yeah. Um, and I think that I saw people working very hard to get my attention with their criticism, and uh, and and I found it, you know, uh, an avenue of, to, to to giggle at. <laughs> so you, I get it. I see. I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Um, do you think we treat with the attention we have with celebrities, which really, I mean, it goes back to the freaking 1930s, but the machine has really been in place starting late 70s, the 80s, it really took off, and it's gone ever since. 
And we see over and over again with younger celebrities or child stars or people who become famous, like in that 19 to 23 range. And a lot of them have trouble handling it. Like, why haven't we ever tried to fix this? Well, there's, <clears throat> because I probably, I, 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 I don't want to get hung up on the part of it that is specifically celebrity. But I, I can say, for example, I, I just, um, the, the lady to whom this, this book, recent book is dedicated to and I uh, went, to, uh, just got back from Cuba. We went to, to Cuba last week yeah. for a few days. And you might be recognized there. They will value warmly what you do. But it is, it is just part of the fabric of, of that nuance of the exchange and the, and the, and, and the, um, the meeting of two humans. Yeah. And, it, and that passes rather quickly into their interest in what the, you, know, you, you like to eat as another person they want to be hospitable to. Yeah. And into you asking questions about them and how many kids do you, and it becomes just a kind of, you know, just real life conversation. You can, in a lot of parts of the world, particularly in parts of the world where the stakes are much higher for people yeah, um, and where they have not had the choices that we've had, there's less indulgence in, in uh, something like celebrity and much more enjoyment of it. It's not, uh, there's not a kind of possessory feel that people have somebody or something or a particular hunger to be it. You know, you don't, there's, there's not, you know, in the Cuban culture, for better and worse, there's not a lot of upward mobility, whether you're, you know, famous for what you do or not famous for what you do. And so there's a kind of, um, you know, I think in the best part of that culture is the, you know, is, is the the common nature of people and, and there's a lot of warmth in that here around celebrity there's a lot of desperation and when we're talking about los angeles or new york there's there's a lot of active desperation and envy yeah and um and i think it creates a culture of a lot of self-loathing and and that's the the you know that's the good news <laughs> it gets a lot worse from there and and what it leads to finally is that when we when we take a poll of who is the country's favorite celebrity, we will have been part of creating that which gets elected president. <laughs> I figured you were ending on that one. Um, your career, you go like 20 plus years, and then you win the Oscar for Mystic River, and then you win again a few years later for Milk. I thought your attitude about winning the Oscar, it made me laugh. Like, you didn't take it seriously. Because for most people, it's like, this is the exclamation point of my career. I've, I've made it. And you just didn't see it that way. Well, I, I don't want to say I took it seriously or didn't take it seriously. It's, it's, what's very serious about it is that, you know, uh, when you make a movie, and movies wouldn't be made without uh, – you know, let's say marketing departments without all of the other elements of getting a movie out there and yeah. distributed. And that's studio people, yes. It's publicists, yes. It's also your fellow actors kind of going out there on the hump, you know, the director, the producers. And a lot of effort is put in to movies getting these nominations or getting these awards by a lot of people you care about. Yeah, And when it's on you know, part of it is on 
in support of you uh, as part of that that movie the biggest reaction you can have if you win the damn thing is relief it's like okay they didn't waste their time they didn't you know yeah everybody's happy i can go home now um the you know, I, I, I absolutely understand the excitement that, that people can have about all of that stuff. But I had remembered, and, you know, the, the Academy, I suppose, of, of which I never, I don't, I don't think I'm even a member of the Academy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so if people want to get mad at me, they can. But it, it is as true as not when somebody once said uh, to a winner of the Academy Award, Welcome to the club of mediocrity, because so often that's the case. Right. And then there are these years where I, I'm no different than anybody. I mean, when, for example, when, when what must have been a unanimous decision and Robert De Niro won for Raging Bull, it's a triumphant moment in the arts. Yeah. But too often, um, you know, some bad, you know, when I say TV movie, I got to be careful because... I, my reference is what TV used to be, right? So when some bad TV movie yeah. wins Best Picture or some saccharine wink at the audience performance wins Best Performer, Actress, or Actor, you, you, you can't help but just turn on Forensic Files yeah. and, and decide to have a good time that night. <laughs> what, what part, since you became a working actor... What part have you been the most jealous of that somebody else did where you're like, oh, man, what an awesome part. I would have loved that one. Every part that ever happened under the direction of John Cassavetes from before I was an Oh, actor. wow. Yeah. That's your guy? I think that, you know, I, and I almost worked with John and got to be very friendly with him near the end of his life, and then he, he, got, he got too sick to make the film. Uh, but when I go back, when I think about what would get me today excited about being an actor, it would be to work in movies with a director like that, um, taking on the subjects that he took on with the, the humor and yeah. the wildness of, of, the, of the true human soul and all of it that was particularly unique to, to his, his movies. You've had some good ones, though. You Early Fincher... Oh, I've had, I've had what was that? Amazing tell me, director. Tell me Fincher story. Tell me a Fincher story. <laughs> did you know? Uh, did you know this was, guy was going to be one of the guys? Because it, it hadn't totally happened by when you were making the game with them. Well, David Fincher, who I cannot claim to know very well. You know, I, I worked a short time with him and, and in a friendly way. Yeah. Um, we have. We never uh, met up for a beer or anything like that. Um, and then I've run into David, you know, uh, I mean, a handful of times since then. But he, I think he, his presence was one of somebody that was so um, in possession of his own imagination and the skill set to render it. Yeah. Uh, that he had a reputation that preceded his success. In other words... It was never going to be stopped. It wasn't. It wasn't like I look at him now as what he's become. He he was that before he made a movie. Yeah. So he was a very he's a very impressive guy. 
a, a guy like Alejandro Gonzalez Senorito, who I I yeah. think is as great as any filmmaker that anybody's ever seen. You know, is, who's around? Who I, you know, you know, I I, th I think when I was answering the question related to John, it was about the roles, and the and the it was and when I think about the roles, I think about who was going to create something for their own surprise, and I was going to get to surprise myself within it. And if we surprised ourselves well, it was going to work. And if not, it would work on the next one. Yeah. What did you learn from Clint? Oh, calm. And I still haven't learned it well enough. He, uh, he has, see, he is a guy who I think, for whom filmmaking is such a, 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 a effortless part of who he is. Yeah. And his jazz background, I think, is where I'd find it most clearly reflected because, you, you, you know, he's kind of famously ready to move on after one take. And, and right. I think he's a big believer in the magic of the, of the first improvisation, you know, in, in jazz or the first take and what the actors do together and the first time. He doesn't like to belabor things. And that's its own magic when it works. Uh, and, <clears throat> but you, you, you take that and you take somebody like Alejandro, well, for that magic, I mean, he's going to, he's going to, the only person he's going to torture more than he does you is himself. I mean, he will work as hard as, he will make sure he works harder than anybody else. There. Yeah. So you always feel uh, in solidarity. Who and, would you rather work <laughs> with out of those two styles? What is more fun for you? Oh, <laughs> that puts me in an awkward social. <laughs> I, I I don't want to answer. I would say that I was depends really, on the person. I was very lucky to work with both of them. Yeah. Do you like being able to craft what your vision of the part is, or if you feel like the director has it and has had everything lined out, you're just going to trust him and do what he wants? Like, or does it depend on the movie? I think the the second description is a description of a very bad director. Yeah. Um, you have each person, whether they become an actor or not, has an actor inside. Yeah. And there's a kind of music that you hear that, that in, in your body that, that takes you to a character, um, you know, at, at your best more fully than at other times, let's say. And for a director to assume that they know all the beats of that music, and therefore decide which of those beats they want to use as their clay um, is a misread. And, and, you know, everybody's music changes every year they, 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 they live. Yeah. So, you know, why, which is why you'll see in some actors and actresses big surprises very late in their career. Or you'll see something happen where somebody... You know, uh, Gary Oldman's an interesting kind of tale of, right. of this. Gary Oldman was, without a question, one of the actors of our young generation. And everyone knew it. And be, until he played Winston Churchill, just because of a variety of whatever was going on in his life, choices he'd made, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that most younger audiences flat out were going to miss ever really knowing the, uh, about, not that he ever stopped working, but he was not doing uh, Darkest Hours or something. Yeah. And I remember 
being, you know, just I had never thought about it in this way. But when I saw him in Darkest Hours, this kind of thrill comes into your cells. Wait a minute. Yeah. This generation gets to see the Beatles play. <laughs> I thought that they weren't going to, or they never even heard of the Beatles. And, and so there are, so a director, a director has to, you know, be aware of time and change and, and, and what an actor is in their heart is kind of a searching thing. And, uh, and they shouldn't be fully anticipated. You never worked with Paul Thomas Anderson or Tarantino. No. Uh -uh. Any reason? Well, uh, Quentin asked me to do one movie uh, at one time that it wasn't for me uh, to do. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. What was the movie? Um, it was one of the parts in Pulp Fiction. Um, what? But but see, I wasn't upset that I had done it. I thought it was much more fulfilled by the person that did it. I don't yeah. want to say what part and get into those yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah, you got your whole action. But, uh, but, um, I'm just going to think about Paul, it for the rest of my life. Paul and I talked about a couple of different things, and I, I remember he made the— that terrific uh, movie with Adam Sandler. Yeah, Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, and he came to me to talk to me about one of the parts, but it wasn't Adam Sandler's. I read that script. I said, sorry, I'm, I already fell in love. I, I fell in love with the part you've cast. Yeah. And, you know, let me know if Adam Sandler dies, and I'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically so. Um, well, he's tight with your brother, too. Uh, who, who's that? Uh, Paul. Michael. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They'd work he's together. He's in Boogie Nights. Nobody realizes he's he, the he, studio he guy with Dirt Diggler. Boogie yeah. Nights and Heart 8. And, yeah. then, uh, and then his wife, my, Magnolia. my sister-in-law, scored Magnolia. Yeah. yeah, Amy Mann being your sister-in-law is an underrated random fact. She's a very talented woman, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Boston's own. Yeah. Um, we didn't talk about Nicholson. What'd you learn from him? You spent a whole... He, you directed him. You did a whole thing. You... You were with them every night. I, re I remember reading the stories back in the day, but you actually like kind of bonded with them. He's, um, the, you know, the, this 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 uh, figure of speech is uh, overused, and uh, I think. But when when one says they broke the mold, yeah, I'm going to go on record. There will never be another Jack Nicholson. <laughs> I think it's a fair one. Um, because I believe that you know, and this is it might sound like a flamboyant comment. I believe he has got um, the mind uh, uh, of James Joyce. I mean, he has as a brilliant, a again, I'll use that word linear, linear slash nonlinear thinker. Yeah. Um, wordsmith, uh, a, you know, a great reader, very, very literate, among the most caring people I've ever met certainly the most supportive and most significantly supportive in terms of everything that I got to do with my career from the time I worked with him. Wow. Uh, he, he, you know, he's again, an actor. There's not, there's no such thing as a better actor. Um, and you know, arguably, uh, among the great actors, he is, um, over and over again was, is the most charismatic film presence we've ever seen. Um, and the, and, and as, you know, true a, a person as, as you'll ever run into. So there's, there's, there, well, whether you're talking professionally, creatively, humanly, um, I, I can't call attention to all the, the things of him that I appreciate other than to, to say that I feel, you know, an awful lot of gratitude. 
uh, for having had him, you know. It's intimidating to, to direct somebody like that? He doesn't let that happen. Yeah. He is your soldier. Really? I mean, if you're a director, he's the guy that's there to make you better. So what's going on with, you might be retired from movies, but now you're not. You came back. You're, you're not done acting. Well, here, here's what I can tell you. Oh. That if it requires more than two days in a less than stellar location with a less than stellar paycheck and a less than stellar script and director, you should, and you see me doing it, you should assume I'm miserable. <laughs> um, you, you know, the, the other way of saying that is if it were a couple of days on a great thing for a load of money in a great place with a great director, I'd, I'd love to do that. But, but stopping what feels like the movement of my life to do that for a living, uh, I don't want to do anymore. I don't want to wake up, put somebody else's clothes on and dig up stuff from the inside of myself and do it according to a schedule and, and I don't think that's what happens. So on. I think you're getting your creative Jones from these books. No question about you're that. You've thrown, ever since you started throwing yourself into your novelist career, all of a sudden you don't care about acting anymore. It's, you've, you've, it's basically, I used to write columns forever and now I love doing podcasts and I don't write anymore. And it's, it kind of shifted my brain to this different place and I wish I wrote and I don't. But I'm just kind of over here now, and I don't know if I'm ever going to go back there, but I feel like maybe that's what you're, what's going on with you. Well, I, you know, of course this will be misinterpreted uh, as, a, as, as, as an absence of appreciation for the, the luck that I've had and what I've been able to do in film and as an actor and, and, and what it's given me, you know, in terms of being able to make a really good living and being able to have a, a lot of freedom and all of those things. The part of it that started to work negatively on me and started to be not enjoyable. I think it took it's it getting to the point where it was a prison that I had to break out of for me to do what I'd always wanted to do, yeah. which was write a novel. I was going to procrastinate my way into hard time and then write to break out of that prison. <laughs> and I think that that writing these books is a combination of well, that drive to not to to be able to express myself freely without a studio, without anybody I was responsible to. Because the the greatest thing about writing a novel is that yes, they can they can do well or not do well. So far, the first one did really well. Yeah. The second one's coming out. We'll see what happens. September tenth. Yeah, and but. By the time, well, you know, you, co you cost nobody any money while you're writing. Nobody is taking a leap of faith in you and sometimes not understanding what you're really trying to do and therefore disappointed even when you feel you've succeeded in it. Like you, you can make a film and you described, a, you, you know, they asked you to make a bird, if you really were going to make a bird and you said yes and they right. were looking for a swan and you made a falcon or vice versa, you know, you misunderstood each other. Yeah. And so you disappoint people or you alienate people or this movie is, this is, this movie's too graphic or this movie's too, and, and you just get censored and censored and censored and you bleed yourself over the money it costs and, and, and the pressures that come on to you. With a book, by the time other people are investing in it, they know exactly what they're investing in and they're all adults and so on. You're not, you've finished it. Yeah. And then you say, what do you think? 
And if a publisher likes it, they're your partner. And they'll be your partner in failure or success. And nobody, there was nobody felt misled. And the liberation of that, to not disappoint friends or get in, you know, get in, or even have to consult. And, to, and, and most of all, to not, to, to now be completely free of any self-censorship. Because well, you're, you, you have to censor yourself as a, as a screenwriter the moment you write a paragraph that's going to cost an extra $20 million because of what it's showing. Yeah. I can, I can, write, I can write this into the, a novel. Into the, it doesn't matter because it, it doesn't cost any more to have a bigger imagination. I have two thoughts. First one is it sounds like when, when people retire in sports, a lot of times it's not because they're washed up. It's just the process of getting ready to play another season. That's what they get scared of. Like the summer, knowing that, oh, shit, now I got to spend three months. Yeah, I'm both. I'm washed up and terrified (laughs) of another season. No, but it's that off season freaks them out. And it becomes such a big burden to them. They just don't want to go through it anymore. That's one thing. The other thing is I totally get what you're saying with the book. I wrote a 700-page basketball book once. That's a lot of writing. 270,000 words or something. But um but you get in this mode where it's just you and the book and you're the only one who understands it and you're trapped in it. Nobody can help you. And I kind of liked it. I I'll never do it again because I I almost like went over the cliff with it, but um but I totally get like all I did every day was just think about this book and I was the only one who knew where all the pieces went. Yeah, but you also had to get your facts straight, right? I did. I had to do everything. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. I have no obligation to facts in my novels. But when you're writing a novel, it all has to make sense in some way, right? You're the only one who knows all the jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. pieces. That's what I missed. Yeah, well, I, it, it, so much so for me that it, that it actually is part of the fun, you, you know, like because— it's the same for me in most conversations Yeah, where even with people who know me well, they will say, you know, I had no idea what you were talking about <laughs> Right. in most of the conversations that I have. And I've been accused of, you know, talking in riddles and so on. When I think that I'm being absolutely clear, when I write, I then, after I back off from what I write, I back off and I look at it, I go, nobody's going to understand this. And now I can see it. Yeah. So it is true of me what they said. But now I can sit there and I've got, I, I don't have to think hard or let my mind be free to create what I want to create because it's created. Now I, I'm going to juxtapose it. Now I'm going to clarify it, you know. So I, I kind of do two significant versions when I write a book. I say like I've written so many books. Now my second book, but in both cases, one version uh, that's mine. And the other version is the same, all the same writing but I've taken lines from here and put them over here. I've yeah. put a period here and I put the, it's, it's just putting it in an order that allows someone else in. And these still challenge that. And I like that. I like it that way, but I do make sure that by the end, I, I let some trusted people read it without telling them what to expect. Yeah. And if they can tell me uh, that they read what I intended, you know, they tell me about, okay, I say, what's it, what, it, what is the book? And I hear back and I know, it can be understood. That's enough for me. I still think from a career standpoint, you need your equivalent of the verdict. Well, that was uh, my equivalent of the verdict. Well, here's the funny thing. I remember that being like the older, like the 
the the elder Paul Newman. It wasn't and, even elder, but, it was but, just what, what, older. What, what I was going to say is, I remember it that way because the age I was when I saw it. Yeah. He might have been younger than I am I now when he, he did it. And so um, so when I think of that, I still have the old perception, which means like you're talking about something 20 years from now. <laughs> and uh, and that's how. I think what was so key know, about when he did that was he was finally saying like, I'm at a different point in my life and I wouldn't have played this part five years ago. But now I'm just old enough that I can play this part. And it was like a different side of it. And you should win the Oscar. But um, Yeah, and, and, and also, again, a wonderful script and a, a, it's an amazing a great movie. director. That's a good one. Sidney Lumet. Yeah. So you're surfing, you're writing books. Not surfing enough, but I'm I'm writing books. I'm, I'm we eight. didn't talk. How old are your kids now? My son's 26 and my daughter's 28. How's that going? It's going great. FaceTime? Do I, they FaceTime you? Well, I see them quite a bit. In fact, I just directed both of them in a movie. So that, that's uh, that's. The last, I did that right after I finished the book. Are your kids more like you or their mom? Well, I, what I like to say is um, they got my looks because their mother kept hers. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, they, um, but uh, no, I got two beautiful, talented, smart children. Um, and they've got pieces of both of us in them. And, uh, and, and I, yeah. And so I yeah, just. Well, how do you yeah. think they describe you? But you got to pick to their friends. Day. Depends on the day. Depends on <laughs> the fucking day. dad. Jesus. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, well, good luck with this book. It is called Bob Honey Sings Jimmy Crack Corn. Comes out on September 10th. Well, how much? How much? How many shows are you doing? You're David Spade. I I'm gonna go do David Spade's show. Put right, a tattoo right on him. He still has the other one. I'm doing it. I am. He showed me it. He I'm, still has it. I, I just gave the kit back for them to take it over. It's such set. a great story. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. T you know, I, I he knew I had a tattoo parlor before I did that, which I called Sean's Okay Tattoos, <laughs> and it, it was because they were just okay. And 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 I'm out of practice, so they'll, I'm gonna go do a less than okay tattoo on him right now. All right, and we welcome you on the Patriots bandwagon. I know you like championship winners. Thank you. Thanks, Sean Penn. Thank you. All right, thanks to Sean Penn. Thanks to Jacko. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. And thanks to Spotify. Don't forget, the hottest take premiering next week exclusively on Spotify. You can follow that feed right now. And as soon as, it, uh, as, soon as we start dropping them, you'll have them back on Thursday with Million Dollar Picks and... Mallory's most intriguing and a whole bunch of other things. We'll see you next. 